Hello, and welcome to The Happy Writer. This is a podcast that aims to bring readers more books to enjoy and to help authors find more joy in their writing. I am your host, Marissa Meyer. Thank you for joining us today. One thing making me happy this week, and honestly, I cannot believe I'm about to say this, but this month marks our three-year anniversary here on The Happy Writer Podcast. Um, In addition to that, we are also coming right up on our 150th episode. I can't even believe it. It's gone by so quickly. And honestly, when I started this podcast back at the start of COVID, I don't know if I thought I would still be doing it in three years. Um, I don't really know if I had any real expectations back then. I just knew that I wanted some way to connect with other writers when you know all of the events were getting shut down and no more festivals and conferences and, and all of this. And and I also was looking for some way to, you know, help support authors who are having books come out and that that just really difficult time. Um, so back then I was not thinking long term. Uh, but here we are, three years later, still going strong, still loving it. Um, and I just want to say I am so grateful to Joanne Levy, who does so much of our behind the scenes work and our social media work to help keep this podcast rolling. Uh, and to Deke, who has been doing an amazing job with our audio editing this year. And to all of the many, many authors who have come on the show and shared their stories and inspiration and wisdom and just gushed with me about writing and the craft and all of it. Um, and of course, I am just super, super grateful for you, listeners. Uh, thank you for joining in every week. I truly truly hope that these conversations for you have been helpful, um, maybe have offered some guidance on your writing journey. I hope that you've been able to discover some really fun new books. I don't know. I, I just hope that listening to us chat about books and writing every week has brought you some measure of happiness because that's kind of the goal. So thank you for joining me and I will be raising a glass to the next three years. On that note, a quick bit of housekeeping. We are having a survey right now all throughout the month of March. We would love for you to fill it out. Let us know how we're doing, how we could be doing better, what you like, what you don't like. Uh, you can find the link to that survey on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. And the best part is that when you fill out the survey, you get automatically entered to win some really cool anniversary prizes, um, including some happy writer swag. And also we have a number of those like fancy book influencer boxes um, because publishers have started to send these to me. I guess when you have a podcast, you become an influencer. <laughs> Who knew? So I've started to get these really cool boxes with all sorts of swag in them. And I want to share them with you. So there's a lot of cool prizes. Again, fill out the survey by the end of March to be entered to win. And thank you in advance. And I, of course, am so happy to be talking to today's guest. She's an author of romantic fantasies with a PhD in clinical psychology with an expertise in adolescent trauma. Her debut young adult historical fantasy, Ravel, came out last month. Please welcome Lissa Mia Smith. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. 
Well, huge congratulations on the release of your debut novel. Thank you very much. I remember reading about this one quite a long time ago. I think I maybe heard about it when it uh, the deal was published in Publishers Weekly. Um, and like way, way, way back then, it was like, you know, pitched as like Moulin Rouge in Prohibition era New York with magic. And I was like, put that on the list. <laughs> I want that one. Yeah, that's still uh, basically the pitch, too. That seems to be what gravitates, uh, what people gravitate towards, the Moulin Rouge in the Roaring Twenties aspect. Yeah, no, it's a great hook. Um, and as a fan of Moulin Rouge and a fan of magic and a fan of historical fantasy, so up my aisle and I really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. It's it's surreal for me because I've been reading your books for a long time. So the idea that you read mine is a little bit mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad that you also enjoy mine. Absolutely. All right, Lissa, the first of all, I should ask, do you go by Lissa or Lissa Mia? Lissa. Lissa's okay. fine. Excellent. Yeah. Uh so the first question I always like to start with with our guests, I would love to hear your origin story. Um, Your degree, as mentioned in your bio, was not in writing or literature. How did you end up coming, being here to having your first novel published? Yeah, so it's a little bit roundabout. I have always been an avid reader. When I was younger, I devoured books by the dozen. I always had, you know, I was going to the library weekly, twice a week and reading hundreds of books a year when I was younger. And I used to write stories all the time and staple them together, try to make my own books. But I'm a practical person at heart, and I was a practical child, and the idea of writing a full novel seemed very daunting to me. So I never wanted to be an author, per se. I think deep down I did, but I was too intimidated by the idea of writing that many pages, and I needed more immediate gratification. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up going to school and becoming a psychologist, uh, which I still do part-time in love. But... Let's see. I guess I was in school. I went straight from college to graduate school. And by the time I had time to really and truly read again, uh, it was probably 2012, 2013 when I finished school completely. And at that time, uh, I started just, again, reading constantly and reading voraciously. If I had a few days, I could read a few books. And at that time, then I I sort of got the itch. What if I were to try this myself? And it was sort of, finally, I had free time because I'd been in school forever. I didn't yet have children. And I was working and working was so much less time consuming than being a student and working. So it was a challenge that one of my close friends who is an English teacher and I had together, let's try to write our first books before we're 30. Let's see if we could, you know, this could be like a bucket list thing. Let's see if we can write books. Neither of us finished before we were 30, but we both did it, which is something. And I discovered that I really loved it. And I could not stop writing once I started, you know, slowly figuring out what is story. How do I make characters that feel realistic? How do I get someone to read this and feel something? I was just completely and utterly addicted to the process. So I wrote something that I never really let anybody read, which was probably for the best. And then I tried something else with what I learned from that. And that was uh, a manuscript that I finished and revised quite a bit and submitted it to uh, Pitch Wars. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Pitch Mm -hmm. Wars. So Pitch Wars being the uh, former mentorship program where people could whip their uh, manuscripts into shape with a mentor and then put them in a showcase where agents could sort of shop around and see if anything caught their eye. So I applied once, didn't get in, applied a second time, got in with this 
YA sci-fi space opera uh, that that was comped to uh, your Cinder series. Nice. But unfortunately, that wasn't the one to get me my agent. I think in the long run, that worked out for the best. But I learned the query trenches through that and uh, collected quite a few passes. I try not to call them rejections because now that I understand the field better, it's not quite a rejection, right? This is Mm. more of a just not the right fit, not sure how to sell this. Um, But from then, I tried to write something more that I felt like was writing to market, something contemporary, which is never a good idea. And I quickly was Mm -hmm. falling out of love with this idea and falling out of love with writing, which was really a shame because it was my favorite, favorite thing to do. But I really thought if I just write something contemporary, then, you know, this will get me a better chance to get an agent and get published. And then I realized while doing this, like, this is not what this is about. And so I, being a psychologist, I dove into uh, what does the research say about becoming better at what you do? And what does the research say about being happy? And there's a bit of overlap between the two. This is where I get really nerdy. I hope that's okay. I love it. I'm so here for this conversation. <laughs> Tell okay, me good. all the things. <laughs> okay, great. So the research on happiness is interesting. Uh, this is the idea that people are happy when they reach their goals. It's not quite it. Or when their dreams come true, it's really the pursuit of happiness is what research seems to tell us. I'm sorry if you hear that little yip, my dog is aware that I'm talking and not giving her attention. And she's like, oh. <laughs> like, I am pursuing happiness by trying to get your attention. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's the pursuit of happiness. So it's not, it's not when the band is on tour for years and years and years. Maybe, you know, if they're, if they're content in their shoes, then they're happy, but it's not like they're on this high forever. The high is when they're practicing and they're dreaming of this and they're grinding and they're working in the garage or whatever it is. And that I think works for writing too, in that, well, with any, with any emotion, we, we sort of stagnate with it. We get used to and accustomed to that our emotion, our brains adjust to it. And we don't feel perfectly blissful for months at a time or years at a time. You know, we have bliss when good things happen and then it sort of fades and when it becomes the new normal that this is a good thing in our life. Research told me, okay, it's not that I'm going to be magically happy when I one day hopefully become a published author. I have to enjoy this process. And if I don't enjoy this process, I'm going to drive myself miserable and probably won't put in the hard work to get there anyways. And that is where my second favorite nerdy thing comes in. And this is called deliberate practice. Does that ring a bell at all? Uh, No. Okay, good. (laughs) It's easier if I explain it. So deliberate practice comes from the idea. um, Oh, I wish I remember the author's name. I'm terrible at names, but the book is Peak and it's a great uh, psychology book that talks about this concept. But the idea for a while, people thought that if you just practice something for thousands of hours, uh, I think the rule was 15,000 hours or 10,000 hours Mm -hmm. and you could master it. So if someone played chess for 15,000 hours, they'd certainly they'd be a, a chess master. And if we write books for 15,000 hours, then we're going to be phenomenal bestsellers, uh, which I think we can kind of understand isn't necessarily the case. And so what the research shows us is that we really need something uh, that they've coined deliberate practice. And deliberate practice is the idea of purposely practicing a skill in order to become better at it. And in order to do that, we need feedback from people who are a little bit ahead of us to sort of reach back and show us the ropes. So I realized in trying to write contemporary and just doing the same thing and repeat, not only was I sort of killing my joy, because that's not my, I love to read contemporary books, but I don't, I want magic in what I write. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I wasn't enjoying it as much, but I also was spinning my wheels and just using the same skills repeatedly. So then I started to challenge myself, like, okay, I'm going to try to write something that one, I really enjoy, and two, is harder for me. Let me try to write two point of views and see how that is. Or let me try to write a character that maybe is a little less well-behaved than the ones I typically write. And I worked with a lot of critique partners that I had met through Pitch Wars. I worked with my Pitch Wars mentor. And just then I started to see my craft growing and my writing was getting better and better and better. 
And friends who had gotten agents and book deals at this point were learning new things and they were passing those things down to me because I would read for them and they would read for me. And next thing I knew, I was getting a much better response when I was querying. Um, but it wasn't quite there. I knew I could tell that there was something, I won't say wrong with it, but not on the line level, there was something that wasn't what I wanted it to be. And so I applied for the mentorship program again to pitch wars again. And this time I got in with a different agent. Um, I'm sorry, a different mentor, Emily Feed, the author of This Vicious Grace, which mm. came out last year, uh, which I loved. And she's a phenomenal teacher. And she figured out right away, yes, there is something wrong with your line level. And this is what I think it is. And here's how I think you can fix it. And then once she showed that to me, we you know, took the story and went line by line, just making it as emotional as possible and tightened the plot and cut like 30,000 words or something because I'm very, oh, wow. very wordy. <laughs> <laughs> so long story short, that that is how... Um, this manuscript ended up being the one for me. I really focused on what do I want to write that would make me happy? And I was sitting in Moulin Rouge on Broadway, looking around going, this setting needs to be a fantasy novel. This like mm. lush, gorgeous, diamond-crusted setting would be a wonderful fantasy novel. And had the sort of the seed of the idea and then just ran with it and tried to make it better than the last thing I wrote. There are so many things that you just said that I want to dig into. Okay. Um, so, to, so the second Pitch Wars manuscript then was Ravel. Yes, it was Ravel. Okay, I'm so curious. So, if it's, it, it might be impossible to kind of boil down to like a quick conversation, but what was the the thing that felt missing? So, well, there's probably a few things. One is tension. <laughs> mm. So it's a dual point of view book, as you know, it's, um, the, it tells the story of Lux, who is the star acrobat of the Ravel fantastical enchanted show uh, in their 1920s island off the coast of New York, sort of like a Coney Island feel. And then there's Jameson, the penniless orphan from what in the book is called the mainland, more like, you know, the rest of the United States. And they're both good people at their at their core. And so in the earlier drafts, they got along really well, really quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that was less interesting to read. And then there was less to root for and less progress to, to be made. So the character sort of, uh, the romance sort of peaked early, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And so a big part of working with Emily was figuring out, okay, well, what about their personalities would not get along right away? Or what could happen here that would cause some understandable mistrust? So that was a big part of it. And the second part was, again, on the on the line level, it's just that I was too wordy. <laughs> so... <laughs> If I had a paragraph of something pretty to say, I could say something so pretty. And then I'd say it four or five other ways. And you <laughs> wouldn't even realize the first thing was pretty because your mind is trying to absorb all of these words. So a big part of it was going through and removing words I didn't need and sticking to one metaphor or one pretty sentence rather than six for the same thing. Oh, that's funny. It happens to the best of us. I am also a wordy writer uh, and I, I spend a whole draft just trying to cut 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 it was so hard sometimes it's so hard I, I envy the underwriter although they say the same about us I know I know grass is always greener yes um so I want to talk a little bit more about the this idea of deliberate practice um because I agree with you it's funny um I haven't used those exact words but the concept comes up a lot when I'm talking with my husband who's a guitar player um, and he's in a, a band that performs locally and he's been playing guitar since he was a teenager. And so he's got a lot of skill, but of course, everyone always wants to be getting better. And it's, he can be so frustrated sometimes where like he spends days and days 
practicing, but doesn't really feel like he sees any improvement. So, you know, we talk about this idea of like, okay, but what specifically do you want to get better at? You know, Mm -hmm. what, what, you know, rather than just going over the same songs, what's, what's your actual focus for this session or this week or whatever. And it is very easy to apply that same idea to writing. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And a lot of the research is actually on musicians, interestingly enough. Mm. Uh, and the idea, for example, of good vocalists, so people with beautiful voices. I, I for one, don't have a beautiful voice. Yeah, me either. <laughs> it's a shame. I always wanted one, but I, I just don't have one. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but my very close friend does have a beautiful voice, and we've known each other since we were two or three, and she's always had a beautiful voice even when we were little. And the narrative was, well, Heather was born with a beautiful voice. She just has this beautiful voice. And I was born without one. And that's just the way it is. I was born tall. She was born with a beautiful voice. Mm. But in retrospect, her whole family are musicians. Everyone in her family is a musician. And they've been singing since she was born. And whenever I've been to any family gathering at her house, there's always guitars and there are always people singing. And it's it's wonderful and lovely. And she learned to sing at a really crucial age when her brain was particularly plastic to music, plastic being, you know, able to absorb and learn things much easier the way we are Mm. when we're younger. And so it wasn't simply that she was born with the genes of someone with a good voice. I mean, perhaps, but more than that, she was exposed to music at a very, very young age and taught by people who knew how to sing, how to sing. Uh, And that's often the case where we think something is just an innate skill, but in reality, it's a lot of practice and it's learning from experts. And that's how a lot of musicians. So I'd, I'd be curious if your husband has musicians in his family. Not really. No. Interesting. So he's very yeah. self-taught. Yeah. I mean, he's taken lessons or took lessons. Good. Um, yeah. But but yeah, no, relatively self-taught, I'd say. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. So this it applies to that and the idea of then, like you said, not just playing the guitar when you're stuck on knowing you can sound better, but figuring out what exactly am I trying to level up right now? Yeah. So then for writers, because of course it's fun to hear this and think like, yeah, I'm going to apply this. I'm going to start writing more deliberately. But in practice, I think that can be kind of a dizzying statement. So what would you recommend to someone um, who's maybe aspiring? They're early in their journey. They know they have, you know, areas to grow in, but aren't really sure how to apply this advice yet. What would you say? I'd say start with uh, critique partners. Start with people who are at your level or, or around your level who probably have different strengths and weaknesses than you and see if you trust them. You know, test a chapter, trade a chapter and see if your style of, you know, of writing and reading jives with what they write and what they read. And if you trust each other, then share your words and give each other feedback that is constructive and complements what's working so you can continue to add that to your work, but also challenges you in the areas of this wasn't clear to me or that wasn't clear to me. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of fiction is making sure we keep people in the story. I think a lot of feedback, if we just center on, when did I realize that you wrote this rather than when did I get pulled from this story? Then we can learn a lot from that. Um, Mm. So that's a step one I often recommend. And some, but some people don't have access to that community even. And then any book we read, it's the same thing. When I, when I read a book, I love it. I fall into it. I stay up till four in the morning and regret it the next day because I need to finish that book. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible habit. Everyone uh, listening is like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then what I'm trying to do is figure out why I loved it. So then I go back to that opening chapter or that scene that I can't get out of my head. And I try to highlight it and underline it. And okay, this this amount of time we're spent on this description, or this is really from the lens of this particular character, or this is just so, like, why is this so gut-wrenching? 
Uh, and so I'm trying to, in that way, although I don't have access to all of these authors, to figure out their craft and what works and what re- what really hooked me and what I might be able to learn from in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I feel like movies and TV also obviously a different form of storytelling, but I get a lot of ideas from watching movies and seeing how they develop uh, characters in a very short a period of time or how they, you know, hook viewers in a short a period of time. I'm always taking things away from movies. Oh, totally. I'm always pausing and driving my family crazy. <laughs> <laughs> this is the dark moment. Just right. Pause. Did you see that break into act two? <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, this was the save the cat. This is see now we know. I know. Like I know. I'm obsessed with save the cat. <laughs> yes. It works. Um, it my kids here maybe like it's been maybe the two months or so. They took an online class about story structure. Um, and like the whole time they were taking the class, I was, we'd be watching TV and I'd be, okay, pause. Now this is what your teacher was referring to as the oopsie. And this was the big oopsie. And they're like, mom, stop it. We get it. (laughs) (laughs) I would love that. That's so cool. Yeah. Minor six and seven. And Mm. they're very, they, they're very sweet boys and they don't like when anything goes wrong in what they're watching. Like if someone's not following, (laughs) it's really a problem for story. So if someone's not following. (laughs) If there's a bad guy or someone's not following the rules, they get they like, just want to turn it off. They want to leave the room and wait till it's better again. So I've taught oh, them. Oh, how like, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I've, I've had to teach them like, no, this is the point in the movie where everything seems like it's wrong. But it's a good, you know, it's a movie for kids, which means it's going to end with like, happy things. It's going to be happy. We have to see how they overcome this. Yeah. Just to try to get them to not run out of the room. <laughs> right, right. It's like, but it, it's so much more satisfying if they've had the challenges first. Exactly. <laughs> And, you know, okay, so speaking of challenges, because you brought up the word uh, challenge a few times when you were talking about, like, finding ways to um, challenge yourself in your writing and practice, you know, potential weaknesses. Um, But also it came up, I think, at one point when you were talking about just enjoying the process. And I thought that was interesting because for me, like, whenever I start to feel maybe a little burned out um, or I'm, you know, feeling maybe a little tired or stressed or whatever. Like my go-to is to think of like, okay, how can I challenge myself? What's something that I haven't written yet or something that I haven't taken on? And I don't know if it's just like my personality or if it's universal, but I get so much satisfaction out of challenging myself in my writing in new ways. I'm the same way and I'm not sure if it's a personality thing or if it is universal. It's something I've wondered and because I've sort of preached this idea of challenging yourself in deliberate practice as a yeah. way to not to not focus on querying or how long publishing can take or all the problems in the industry, but it's it's one of the only things we can control is our craft. And so I've made a really purposeful effort to sort of stay in my lane, celebrate other people, but focus on getting as good as I can and just get the enjoyment out of that, not out of something out of my control, like what the industry is making of my work. So that that's sort of been my headspace. And I, I enjoy a challenge. And I think, you know, what the research on happiness tells us is that I don't think people have a conscious process where they're like, I hope this is really hard for me. I'd, I'd love to get this dream yes. in a really hard way. <laughs> Let's make this a decade. Let's try for a decade. That would be yeah. great. <laughs> consciously think we want instant gratification, but then, you know, th- that does not last particularly long. And I, I don't think we can kind of bury our feet into it. Even even now I've had, I did, queering took me a decade and all from when I started writing to uh, when Ravel came out was about a decade. And I never would have, I don't know that I would have stuck with it if I knew that I'm going into it as an efficient yeah. person. 
But I, I think it helps me now to remember that it wasn't always this way, that I fought hard for this. And it's like a good reminder for myself. That being said, I can I no longer remember what it was like to be in the query trenches when it was so raw for me for so long. Now, when I uh, you know talk to querying writers, I'm careful about the advice I give because you are so quickly out of touch with it. You just get used to wherever you're at. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like the, the emotion, the experience stabilizes. And so... Mm-hmm. But the one thing that there's really no end to is craft, right? We can always grow. We we never hit the max and say, oh, okay, well, now this is as good as our books will ever get. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel like if there was, you know, a, a theme for this podcast, I mean, it comes up all the time, this idea that the quote unquote goal is not to get published. Um, it seems like the goal and it's a, a great goal to have and a great goal to achieve. Um, but it is never the thing that brings you true happiness. It's And you've, of course, already touched on this, but it's much more about enjoying the journey and finding satisfaction in your just day to day work and find, you know, kind of digging into that love of writing and of storytelling and of craft, because that's the thing that you really have to maintain long-term. Exactly. And ironically, that's the thing that's most likely to help us reach those dreams. Absolutely. Of- yeah. Okay. That was such a fantastic conversation. Um, I You kind of already talked a little bit about Ravel and what it is about, but would you officially tell listeners about this book? Sure. And this is probably the hardest question I'll ask me. I'm terrible. <laughs> you <laughs> guess your pitch, I'm sure. I practiced it, but I always, I'm just a chatter. So then I start going, okay, I'm going to stick to it. So Ravel is a young adult romantic fantasy that takes place uh, in the Roaring Twenties on a mystical island off the coast of New York. And it is inspired by Moulin Rouge. It follows the story of Lux Ravel, who is the star of her family's uh, magical, fantastical show. But now that prohibition has hit the island, uh, she must make a deal with the son of her enemies, who's the only bootlegger in town, that she will pose as his girl in order to help him win the next election for mayor, where he's trying to take down his dad, if he sells the Ravels all the booze they need for cheap. Uh, So that's the plan. However, the night she's supposed to charm him, she mistakenly enchants with her magic a penniless orphan, Jameson Port, who has arrived on the island with a strange sense of deja vu. And he begins to search for answers about his parents who have disappeared a long time ago. And the closer he and Lux become, the closer he gets to finding out the truth about his family and the more they are angering very dangerous people. And that is Ravel in a nutshell. Awesome. And it's so fun. It's a whirlwind of a story and just full of delicious romantic tension, which makes it really interesting that that was one of the things that you felt like you needed to work on once upon a time. (laughs) Let's say I worked on it. I worked on it well. That's why it has good tension now. (laughs) Good, good. Well, success. Check that one off the list. (laughs) Um, What I really want to talk the most about um, is the world building here, um, because it is this wonderful combination of history, prohibition era, 1920s, sort of in New York, New York-ish, but then it's also a fantasy story. And so we've got hints of the actual history, but you've also kind of fed in this, this other imaginary history to tie into it and brought in magic, which uh, just makes the whole thing so fun. So what was your approach to developing the world here? I guess it happened in in phases. Um, 
again, the the first seed of this idea was sitting uh, at Moulin Rouge on Broadway and sitting in that theater and looking around and just wanting, I always wrote things that were a little bit dark and just wanting to try to write something that was glittering. Uh, mm. And I liked the idea. I've always been fascinated by the idea that all that glitters must fade. And that's sort of one of the themes of Ravel is that, and with the Roaring Twenties in general, is that, you know, it looks like glitz and glam and women's liberation in all different ways, uh, but it's really just uh, paper thin and fragile. And beneath the surface, there's still a lot of problems and a, a lot of not quite having the power that we thought we had. So it started with, you know, the idea of things being shiny and sparkling, having a, a magic system based on gems and diamonds, at least for the Ravel family. And then from there, the 1920s sort of made their way into the story. Like at first it was, uh, you know, second world fantasy, meaning it's just a completely different world than our own. But then as I was writing it, I wanted stakes to feel really personal to the Ravel family. And the 1920s are so glittery in the way that we've romanticized them. Uh, and once the idea occurred to me, I'm like, oh, this could fit perfectly. This fits thematically. This fits with like the vibe of, you know, what I'm trying to do here. So then I researched the 20s ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, and with research, 95% of what you research, you try to put in the book, but actually can't. Yeah. Uh, but I felt like I had a good understanding of the timing. I, I set this right when this is the first summer that prohibition is in effect. So it's right the summer of 1920. I'm a New Yorker myself. I have always lived in New York. And so write what you know. I'm very comfortable with New York. I love New York. But I didn't want to put it in actual New York. I, I already had these characters and it's a fairly diverse family of characters. And I didn't want, it was just very, very complicated to write diverse characters in New York in 1920 without mm -hmm. it becoming a, bush de a book dealing heavily with racism, ableism, ever all the isms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they're touched upon, but I wanted this to be a, you know, a sparkling book and a joyous book. Um, and so I made up this island, this Coney Island-like island off the coast that you need to take a ferry ride for a couple hours to get there. And then I really just tried to have fun with it. The magic was one of the first things I developed, and the magic sort of sets the stage for the island, with each family having their own magic and that being trying to be fun, but also making sure magic always had its cost, which is, again, going into that everything looks glittery, but maybe beneath the surface, it's not quite that way. Mm -hmm. And with the magic... Did you know early, early on what your five different families, what their magic was going to be? And did you have kind of the the rules figured out and the costs of magic figured out? Or was that one of those things that kind of developed along with the story? It was one of the first things I came up with, even before I knew the characters well. Uh, and this is unusual for me as a writer. This this magic system just sort of flew out of me. It was the first few days I had this idea. I was just playing with it and jotting down notes in my phone. Like, oh, well, what if, you know, what if there was this family that could control emotions, but in order to do so, they needed a diamond or a jewel? Uh, and then again, the cost of that then would be that the jewel turns to dust and it crumbles as they use it. So they have to time it just right so that people enjoy themselves and keep coming back for more, but they still need to turn a profit and they can't ruin mm -hmm. the jewel. I've always been fascinated by time travel as an idea. I don't know that I'll ever write a time travel book again because that was really quite challenging. <laughs> yeah, I want to go deeper into that, but continue. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the Kronos family in the book, they're the sort of the enemy family, although a few of them aren't so bad. And they have the power to travel backward in the past. But every length of time that they travel, they age 100 times that. So if they want to 
change the last hour, they can go an hour back, but they're aging 100 hours. So that's a few days, no big deal. But if they want to change a month ago, what happened? Now they need to travel back 100 months. And so that's nearly a decade. And that's a much bigger problem. Uh, giving up a decade of your life and all of a sudden, you know, waking up, if you're 16, waking up at 26. And I really liked that. And that was fun because it gave them this tremendous power. The the Cronuses can control the narrative of the island. They're the politicians. They make all the right choices because they keep kind of take turns as a family, having someone travel back and redoing things for them. Uh, they own all the land. They they take care of their own and they punish everyone who gets in their way. But it comes at great cost to them. And uh, so that's, again, the, fitting with that theme. Uh, the effigen family is the power of potency. And this was sort of more of a fun one because I wanted magical cocktails on this prohibition era <laughs> island. <laughs> so they can take anything and make it more potent. Uh, so if they wanted to take a blueberry, they could take 12 blueberries and combine them together. So one is the most delicious, bluest blueberry you've ever had. But of course, they don't do this with blueberries. They do this mostly with alcohol. So some drinks are super, super powerful and maybe even hallucinogenic, and some are duds because they're trying to make money, and so they can't do this for every drink. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The Edwardians are kind of going through. Edwardians, uh, that was a nod to Moulin Rouge and the idea of I only speak the truth. So the cost of their magic is that they can't lie, and anytime they are asked a question, they must answer it, and they must do so honestly. But what they can do is they can hear thoughts all the time. They hear what everyone else is thinking. And lastly are the Stratori. And this one's probably the most twisted if we really think about it. But they can heal any ailment. However, in order to do so, they must transfer it to a willing party. So both people must volunteer. So if someone is has a mortal gunshot wound, for example, that can be transferred to someone else. But the other person is going to have a mortal gunshot wound. So I wanted the magic to be fantastical, but I wanted people to really struggle to use it. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's talk specifically about the the time travel element, um, because <laughs> as soon as I realized that there were time travelers in the book, I was like, oh, one of those. And I knew I was going to ask about it because any book with time travel just immediately opens up such a can of worms for us writers. It makes so many challenges, so many questions about plot consistency and like it's just it's just a headache of a thing to work with so (laughs) but you've done I mean as far as I I could not find any flaws I think that you did a wonderful job um so how did you manage to kind of keep it all straight well I've had (laughs) spreadsheets right of this timeline. And then every time a Kronos would travel, it's, uh, you know, the way I describe it in the book, it's sort of like erasing a straight line to a certain point and then drawing a new one in an opposite direction or a different direction. But for me, I just had a spreadsheet of all these different timelines. Uh, It was hard giving this power to my villains because they were so powerful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So then I just had to constantly check like, okay, well, if the Kronoses can travel, then wouldn't they do, just do this at this time? So why wouldn't there? They ha- there has to be a reason that they wouldn't either bother or that it wouldn't be worth their time or that the Ravels succeed anyways, or they don't. But yeah, I did not. I, I was very naive when I wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had an editor very early on, uh, I think after I had the offer on this book, an editor was like, I really loved it, but I promised myself I would never edit another time travel book in my <laughs> life. <laughs> Oh, that's that was, hysterical. I know. And I was like, I understand 100%. I don't blame you at all. <laughs> copy editing was really useful to my copy editors were wonderful. And they, I thought I had ironed out all the consistencies and inconsistencies, and they still picked up on one or two oh my things gosh. that were a little bit confusing. Yeah. 
I was thinking it would be such a fun, um, you know, if you ever needed ideas for like a little promotion or like a little gift to readers to like write scenes from some of the erased uh, timelines would be so oh, interesting. Wow. Oh, I love that. I really love that. Yeah. Because there's cause a lot it's of fun good to ones. think of the multiverse and in, in other universes, this actually happened. And but again, it just like adds to the whole mind trippiness of the whole thing. <laughs> oh, I, I really love that. That's great. Um, all right. I've got a million other things that I wanted to ask you about, but we are running out of time. Um, so I'm just gonna jump to one another question that I'd like to ask all of our guests. Uh, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges other than uh, time travel <laughs> <laughs> that you have had to face so far in your writing journey and how are you able to overcome it? I think at first it was finding the right book at the right time and continuing to believe in myself and knock it down on myself as a writer as for again the decade passed uh, mm-hmm. and more recently it's making sure I prioritize writing and trying to f- figure out where writing fits into now a daily practice of writing rather than a just at night when the kids are sleeping practice of writing. Uh, but finding ways to take take myself seriously as an author and take myself seriously as a writer, which I'm I'm still a work in progress. Yeah. No, and that's you mentioned you you're still working as a, as a psychologist. You've got two young kids. How are you making that work? How, how, what is like? What are what have you learned so far when it comes to to balancing all the things? Well, time travel. No, of course. No, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Uh, it's taking, and it's something you've actually talked about in your podcast, the idea of, uh, making sure you treat this as an appointment and treating writing time as something important that you put in your calendar and face the, I think it was about a year and a half ago when I first got the book deal and I wasn't ready to cut down. I was working full time. I had my own practice and I love what I do. I really do. And I was also now writing on deadlines and trying to be as active in my children's life as possible. And then one of my children had, a health thing that came up and I knew I needed to be the point person on it moving forward. And uh, my husband was like, you kind of, you've been staying up until 2 a.m. and then getting up at seven with the kids every single night, like you're going to crash. You're really Mm -hmm. going to crash. And so I made the difficult decision of cutting down on my practice tremendously, uh, which felt, it was really tough because I love the people I work with and I love what I do. And now I truly just do it like about a morning, a week. But for the most part, I'm not I'm not in practice that, that much at all. And I'm focusing, I write while my kids are in school. I write before they go to school, before the bus comes, and then while they're in school. And then once again, when they go to bed. No, it is, it is, I guess, largely about making those priorities and and sometimes making sacrifices, but it is not easy to do. No, not at all. Not at all. I think especially as a, as a parent, it comes with its own challenges too. There's a lot of guilt when you're living in a fantasy world and you're, that's where your mind goes and that's what you want to be doing, but you also love your kids and want to be with them. Truly. Now I'm on deadline right now. And whenever I'm on deadline and my writing time really amps up and I'm, you know, leaving multiple, multiple days a week to go to cafes and get work done. And oh, the guilt, it's unavoidable. And I keep thinking like, you've been through this before, you know, it's just a period of time and then you'll turn the book in and everything will go back to normal, blah, blah, blah. But I I think there's, it's impossible to avoid some of that guilt. It's so true. It really is. All right. Are you ready for our bonus round? Okay. Cake or pie? Pie. Plotter or pantser? A bad plotter who ends up pantsing, but continues to attempt to plot. (laughs) (laughs) But then ignores the 
the very time consuming outline once I start writing. <laughs> That's funny. You're not alone in that. <laughs> do, Good. Do, do you feel that doing the outline still helps? I I want to say yes. I need to believe that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think- be wasted. <laughs> <laughs> right. It must, right? Because every time I do it, uh, and I always follow the first act or whatever, whatever the last act that I outlined is, I follow that really well. And then, woo, it just goes where it wants to go. And then I re-outline, follow that act, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I'm kind of similar. Well, I don't know. It depends on the book. Every book is different. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite writing snack or beverage? Tea. I love tea. And always it's part of my routine is to make a cup of tea before I sit down for a writing session. Um, and snack is whatever I can find. <laughs> <laughs> Dollars or jewels? Jewels. Moulin Rouge or Cirque du Soleil? Oh, Moulin Rouge. <laughs> I love them both, but Moulin Rouge. <laughs> of the five magical families on Charmant, which of their magical powers would you most like to have? So I was asked this at my launch, fortunately, and it took me 10 minutes to respond then, but I'm ready. <laughs> now <time>. you're prepared. <laughs> I think the Ravel family, because I think I could part with jewels more quickly than I could the cost of the other magics. And as a psychologist, I'm fascinated by what people feel and it'd be mm. much easier to, to help people if I could, you know, just give them a little magical nudge to feel better. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. That's, that's a good answer. Um, I was thinking like the time traveling one, you obviously make a wonderful case in the book for why it's really coveted this power, but I would always feel so weird about all of the things that got erased. Like, yeah. I don't think I could handle that, <laughs> like, but I made really good progress in my novel this month and it's just going to go away. Yeah. It's the not being able to jump forward is another kind of hidden cost to that. It's not like you can just change this teeny tiny thing and then yeah. go back to, yeah, no, that's a... <laughs> Some people have said that usually people say time travel and often they say because I say awkward things and then I just erase them. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I can understand that. Yeah. If you're only hopping back a minute or so. Sure. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) What is the top song on your writing playlist? Right now it is Exit Music from Radiohead because book two is a little bit darker. (laughs) It's a little bit angsty. Uh, for Ravel, it was um, a few Panic at the Disco songs. I'm not sure I could pick just one, but quite a few Panic at the Disco songs fit the vibe of Ravel. Okay. I had just assumed it was the Moulin Rouge soundtrack the whole time. That I And the part of that is in there, but it was almost distracting because I love it so much. And I, I would picture Moulin Rouge when I'd listen and yeah, not yeah. picture my story. Uh, so that was later I could kind of incorporate that again, but for really for drafting and revising, I just... I couldn't think of those characters and I love those characters. So it was too tempting. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. What is one small thing that brings you a lot of joy? This isn't such a small thing, but my, uh, I guess my, my pup is my big source of joy aside from my kids right now. Uh, And I'd say, let's say my daily walks with my dog and just making sure I sit. No, I don't sit. I stand (laughs) and get a little fresh air every day. That's been so, so nice. What book makes you happy? All books. Any book with a romance. Do I need to be more specific? Because I can't. Uh, <laughs> like, I refuse. I refuse to narrow it down. Um, I will accept, if that's your answer, that's your answer. Okay. <laughs> what are you working on next? 
So the next book is another YA romantic fantasy, uh, another standalone novel with historical elements. It is Gilded Age, New York. And I can't say much, but I can say my agent describes it as like a YA Bridgerton with magic and murder. Ooh. Yeah, I like how she pitches that. Yeah. You've got good pitches. <laughs> oh, thank you. I wasn't, it's not typically a skill of mine because I'm, I, again, wordy writer, wordy pitcher, but I, <laughs> I, I try to stick to hers. Lastly, where can people find you? They can find me on Instagram as L Smitty Writes. Uh, that is where I am most of the time. I do have a Twitter, but I'm, I don't use it as often. Uh, I have a TikTok out of necessity, but it frightens me a little bit. So I'm really on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, again, longtime listener and reader. So it's just awesome to chat with you. Well, thank you. Readers, please check out Ravel. It is available now. And I'll just go ahead and throw out that I listened to it on audiobook and the narrators were fantastic. So highly recommend. Uh, we always encourage you to support your local indie bookstore. If you don't have a local indie, you can check out our affiliate store. That is at bookshop.org slash shop slash Marissa Meyer. And don't forget to check out our merchandise store on Redbubble and TeePublic. Just search for The Happy Writer. And doubly, don't forget to go and fill out our three-year anniversary survey so you can be entered to win some prizes. Next week, I will be talking with Brittany Morris about her new contemporary action novel, The Jump. If you're enjoying these conversations, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Marissa Meyer Author and at Happy Writer Podcast. Until next time, stay healthy, stay cozy, and whatever life throws at you today, I hope that now you're feeling a little bit happier.